0: Hey guys, how's it going? Good, I'm doing better too. <laughs> it looks it, huh? <laughs> uh, Jesus, thank you so much for laughter. We're so thankful that you can bring light into darkness. God, we're so thankful that we serve the God of all hope. We're thankful that you can restore the years the locusts have eaten, the things that we feel like are gone, are out of reach, hopeless is nothing for you, Jesus. You can repair, you can restore, you can mend relationships, you can redeem in ways that we could never even think of. And so, Jesus, we're thankful to be called your people. We're thankful to have access to your word. I pray tonight as we study that you would speak to us, that we would be people who would be constantly trying to mold ourselves more and more into the image of your son, Jesus, that we would image bear him well and reflect Jesus' To our households and to our workplaces every single day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, <clears throat> many of you may not know. The last time I taught, I had just gotten in a little accident. I my wife bought me this thing called a one wheel for my birthday, which is oh, <laughs> that's what the surgeon said. No joke. When they were taking the X ray, he goes, "What'd you do?" And I went, "I was on a one wheel." He goes, "You're the fourth this week." I'm like, "What? That's not great." really fun though. So uh, I was on one. I actually called the company. I called them and I said, hey, I just want to let you know, I think think your board malfunctioned. And he goes, what happened? And I go, well, I was going 25 miles an hour and the front end just hit the ground. It threw me off. And he goes, what were you on? I go, I was on the one wheel pint. He goes, you got the pint to go 25? Oh yeah. And he goes, well, it's not supposed to do that. And I go, but it did. And he goes, well, didn't you feel the pushback? I go, yeah, man, you can lean right through that. And he says, the pushback is not a suggestion, it's a warning. You know, like when your wife says, hey, the sink is full of dishes, that's not a suggestion, it's a warning, right? So it was totally user error. The last time I taught was right before I had surgery. I had surgery the following day. They put a plate and seven screws in me, so I I just broke it real good. But I'm healing up really well, and that's, I believe, Due to all of your guys' prayers, and I really would appreciate your continued prayer. My goal is to be walking in August, but we'll see. But um, we'll see. (laughs) But really looking forward to that. So, obviously, when I was healing up from the surgery, there was a lot of downtime. You can't do anything when you have a broken ankle. And so, my daughter, one of her favorite things to do is to watch movies. Like she loves just cuddle and watch movies, and so I have a five year old daughter, a three year old son, and a one year old son. All of them don't understand because their like relationship with me is to fight and to tackle and to wrestle. So this has been kind of different. But my daughter, she, I have a five year old girl. If you could guess, the number one movie that's on at my house over and over and over and over again is Frozen. All right, and for those of you who didn't laugh, uh, you could just let it go, let it go. Yeah. So that, that's happening a lot. And well, the creators of that movie, they came out with a new movie this year. And so obviously we have to watch it. And my daughter's all excited to see it. And so we watch it together. We watched it a few times and I don't really care for the big message that it gives. You know, the other one is, hey, you love your family and, and love will prevail. And I'm like, yeah, I'm into that. This one is, if people had just trusted each other, then there'd be no evil. I'm like, that's a weird thing to teach kids. Like, You you just trust people and there's no, I don't think that's true. Like there's there's evil in the world, objectively, in each of us, there is evil, but kids are young and they're naive and so they want to trust people because they haven't been really burned before. Kids want to believe that, well, people just do the right thing and people want to be people of integrity and honest and do what's right and care for others and lift each other up, even though... That might not necessarily be true, you know? And so kids want to be trusting. And the problem can really happen when kids, people who are really naive and want to just trust people blindly, they get, they come across someone who's really malicious or malevolent and can burn them in irreparable ways. And then you see the shift happen where someone who is at once really trusting and naive, once they get burned by someone like that, one, two, three, four times, they switch over and become increasingly and incredibly cynical, like I'm sure you know people, and I know quite a few, who everyone's out to get them, and no one is honest, and no one is trustworthy, and there's a place for that. Like, if you go on Craigslist a lot, you need a bit of that, you know, but you're supposed to be somewhere in the middle where you don't want to be naive, but you don't want to be overly cynical, and the only way for you to trust people and to not be on either end of that spectrum is that it takes a whole lot of courage. It takes a whole lot of courage to trust people, and what's unfortunate is I believe what we do is we get our whole worldview and the way that we think the world works and how we're supposed to operate in it based on things that happened to us in the past. And we can apply that cynicism of, man, I just don't know if they're going to come through for me. I don't know if they care for me. I don't know if they love me. I don't know if they're going to come through. We apply that to the Lord. We apply that to our relationship with God because it does take a whole lot of courage to trust in God. We call it faith, It takes a whole lot of courage to trust that God's going to come through for you, that God's going to do what he says. And what we see as we've been going through the book of Judges is the people have not had that courage. The people have not trusted that God is going to actually come through for them in the way that he would have. They didn't possess the promises that God had laid out for him. God said, hey, go into this land, possess the land, take it, get these people out. And it was difficult, or it was hard, or uncomfortable, oh, God, this just seems like a lot of work, and they just didn't, and as a result, they miss out, and their kids miss out, and it hurts people, and the whole generations and generations in the nation gets set adrift, and things are really bad, and so we're finishing up the book of Judges tonight. These, this last section of the book of Judges, one of my favorite theologians is just like, yeah, it's just bad. That's what he just, just, just describes it. It's like, it's just bad. This is human depravity. It's human sin. It's people have gone completely off the deep end. They're not even relating to God in the way that they're supposed to anymore. It, it, it's, an, it's a completely shocking ending to a book of the Bible. And what you and I, and what the Israelites need to realize and they end up realizing is God has nothing to gain from deceiving you and me. But you and me have everything to lose by not trusting in him and not possessing the promises that he lays out for us. We miss out when we don't do that. But God doesn't gain anything by saying, oh, I'm going to come through for you and then not. So we're going to be finishing up this book. We're in Judges chapter 21. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. So if you weren't here over the last few weeks, what has happened is there's just been chaos and darkness. Uh, There was a woman was gang raped and then dismembered and sent throughout the nation, which caused a mass war and genocide. And we're picking up the story right here. Verse one. Now, the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, "O oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? So the last chapter, if you remember, Israel's pushing for war. They get together. What should we do? We got to kill them. We got to make this right. We have to get justice. We have to make this. so they push, they push, and they push. And then they go out for war. And now they're sitting together and they go, God, why is this happening? God, why did you let this? Well, hold on. Who did this? They did it. But they're sitting together and they're bitter and they're weeping and they're not happy with how things have turned out. And isn't it so often the case that when we see injustice and we try to get justice for it, it ends up where everyone's unhappy. You ever seen that? Here's what's happened with them. They've seen this great injustice happen. They've decided they're going to do what they're going to to do to fix it. They're not going to check in with the Lord. They're not going to pray and wait on him. They're just going to take action. They do so. And now they're completely upset and frustrated and hopeless about how it's turned out and it's because they took the vengeance upon themselves. There's a promise that God makes for his people that they're supposed to possess and hold on and trust in, and it's Deuteronomy 32, 35, where God says, vengeance is mine, I'll take care of it. I, vengeance is mine, you don't have to get revenge. You, when someone wrongs you in a very minor way or even a very severe way, it's not your job to make it right. God will get revenge. Doesn't it take a whole lot of courage to let God do that and decide, uh, man, I have to let things go? And here's what's so important to know. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of faith to remember that God does not let sin go. In fact, when you look at Jesus, one of my favorite stories is Jesus is walking with James and with John, and they come up to Jesus in front of all the other disciples, and they say, hey, will you do what we ask you to do? Jesus goes, sure. And they go, Make us sit at your right and your left hand. Make us the greatest above all these other disciples. They say it in front of the other guys. And Jesus goes, can you drink of the cup that I have to drink from? And they go, yeah, give it to us. Whatever we gotta do, we'll we'll drink the cup. And Jesus goes, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. And he kind of moves on. But as he gets closer and closer to the cross, Jesus over and over again keeps talking about this cup. There's this cup that he's gotta drink from. Where he's heading to, there's a cup that he's gotta take. And you and I look back and we know that he's referencing the cross, but you go, well, what is the cup? Well, here's what it is. God is so meticulous about sin that he keeps track of every little thing. It's placed in, if you want to call it a cup, every sin of omission, which is the thing that you have, you have not done the thing that you should have done where God has put something on your heart and you go, no, I'm I'm not gonna help it. You withhold truth and sin of commission, where you are actively engaging in doing something you should not be doing. All of those things are counted up, added together, and they're in this cup for every single one of us. And on the cross, if you let him, Jesus takes that cup. And so our God is so serious about sin that he's gonna keep track of every little bit of it and he's so serious that about justice, that it has to be paid for. And either Jesus pays for your cup, Jesus drinks your cup, or you drink your cup for eternity. Our God meticulously keeps track. And if you believe in a God like that, if you faithfully and courageously believe in a God like that, doesn't that just give you so much freedom? You don't have to get back at every single person for every little thing. You don't have to get the final word. You don't have to make sure you come out on top because you know, hey, you know what? God's got it handled. God's counting it. Doesn't it give you so much more compassion for other people? Because you don't want them to drink of their cup. You look at yourself and you go, God drank of my cup, and now it it should light a fire in you to where you go, hey, maybe we can reconcile. Maybe we can find forgiveness. Maybe we can work something out here. You and I, a promise that we have to possess is that God does not let sin go. Vengeance is his. I don't have to get even. Even when the enemy says that I do, I can allow God to be God. The other interesting thing in verse three that I think is so funny is, and they said, oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? I'm not going to lie to you. When I flew off the one wheel and I was laying on the asphalt, my knees are bleeding. My arms are bleeding. My face is bleeding. And I'm laying on the ground and just everything hurts kind of equally. You know, so you're not really sure what is more damage or less damage. You're just laying there. I look at my foot and I'm like, man, I really sprained that. And so I lay there for probably 15 minutes and I go, okay, it doesn't hurt anymore. I'm gonna put some weight on it. So I go put some weight on it and I can see it move. And I go, dang it. I go, God, why do I have to break my ankle? Is that God's fault? (laughs) No. (laughs) God's going, why are you going 25 on one wheel? Why are you defying every law of nature that I put in place right now? Are you kidding me? You're going to blame me for that one? And it it's so funny how we do that though. When we're faced with the consequences of our actions, we go, God, why? And he's like, why? <laughs> yeah, but this is something that we always do. It goes all the way back even to Adam. You have Genesis chapter 20, or just Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve they eat the fruit, and God talks to them about it. And what does Adam say? He goes, Well, it was the woman that you gave me. <laughs> he blames God. And you know what's so amazing about our God, even in all of that, is even in the midst of people blaming him, in the midst of the lowest part of human history, right in the midst of active sin, God runs to the sinner, and then he makes a promise to them to make it right. Right at that moment, God sets into motion a plan for him to set up a king who's going to make all the wrongs of the world untrue. Right at that moment. And there's three Proverbs that we've been teaching in the middle school group over this last month. They all come from Proverbs 16. The first one is Proverbs 16.1. It says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from Yahweh. What it's saying is, Your words, your thoughts, and your actions, you are responsible for, and people are going to hold you responsible for them, and they should, and God is going to hold you responsible for your words, and your thoughts, and your actions, and he should, but lucky for us, what comes out of that is all directed by God. That God, even in the midst of our really dumb mistakes, even in the midst of just our lowest points, absolute stupidity, in the middle of blaming him, God is still working his plan to do something. It's so important for us to remember that. Our God, even when he seems absent, even when it seems like God isn't doing anything, he is working something. You and I just might not see it in the moment. And so a promise that you and I need to possess, what we have to remember is Deuteronomy 31.6, which is where... The Lord says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is Yahweh, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Even when things are dark and when things are hard and it just feels like, God, what is happening right now? God is with you. You can be courageous. You can trust in him. His character is not one to abandon you or forsake you. He'll never do that. We can trust in that. So verse four And the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. This is good. This is a good thing that's finally happened. The people are weeping, they're bitter, and they go, you know what we need to do? We need to go to church. And so if you're, as a reader, you go, hey, finally, okay, we're turning in the right direction. But the issue is they go and they, they do the motions, they show up to church and they worship and they, they do the offerings and they, they recite the prayers, but then they don't wait on the Lord. And they leave and they continue to do what they desire to do and whatever's right in their own eyes. They continue to do the sinful thing, the wrong thing. In fact, everything after this just gets, it's a, it's a cycle, it just go worse and worse and worse and worse. They don't wait on the Lord. They 100% at this point, they look like Canaanites. That when God told them to go into the land and to possess it, he said, get the Canaanites out of there. And there was a reason. Because the Canaanites had a way of approaching their God where if they do the right things and they say the right things and they worship in the right way with the right words, well, then God has to do what you want him to do. He's, He's like your genie. You rub the genie right and he's gotta grant your wishes. And what happens is, The Israelites, they grow up watching their parents and they see their parents that when things are going good, we don't have to go to church. We don't have to seek the Lord. We don't have to do the things that maybe we think we should do because things are fine right now. Everything's going good. I don't have to do anything extra. But then when things are really, really hard, that's when you go to church because that forces God to fix it. That's kind of what happens here. Things are really bad. Okay, let's force God to fix it. And they start going to church just trying to get God to do what he wants them to do. Man, isn't that just so like, that's like me. I know it where I call myself a Christian and I worship, but then, you know, I I watch the stuff on TV and I listen to that kind of music and we can evaluate the ways that we talk to our coworkers or our spouse or, and all of a sudden, do I really look any different than the Canaanites? Do I really look any different than anyone else? The the Israelites, they don't. They look just like the Canaanites here. God wanted them removed because God did not want his people to approach him like that. A promise that God makes for you and for me is that if we train up our children in the way that they should go, they won't depart from it. It's Proverbs 22, six. And that word train is super, super important. Because my sister, she came up to my brother and I, and she told us, hey, I'm gonna train and be a bodybuilder. And my brother and I were like, us too that sounds awesome. So my brother and I, we went to the gym twice if you combined both of our efforts over a year, right? (laughs) My sister got up at three o'clock in the morning, six days a week, would eat a protein heavy diet, would work out for two hours, come home, get the house set, go to work, then go back to the gym and then go home and get to bed by like 5 p.m. so she could wake up at three. And she destroyed her social life. She cut all ties that she didn't need to do, cut all unnecessarily habits because this is what she wanted to do. She wanted to train in this. This was important to her. This mattered. This was something she was gonna focus on. And a year later, when my brother and I are still covered in Dorito dust, we're looking at our sister going, why don't we look like that? I went to the gym. But it wasn't a priority for me like it was for her, but she trained and she actually went and won a bodybuilding competition. My brother and I did not, you know, because she trained, she worked hard at it. It takes effort. It takes dedication. It says this matters to train up your children in the way that they should go. Man, doesn't that hill have giants on it? Isn't that difficult? To put aside the time to say this matters, to make it a focus and a priority to say, hey, before we eat meals, we shut off the phones and we pray together. Hey, every morning we get together and we're going to talk about scripture. Hey, we're going to make this a focal point of our family so that even when things are really, really, really good, you know, your dad makes this important. And then when things are really, really bad, you know exactly who you need to go to. Now I know so many of us, me even, I know that when things are really good, when I am in a really great season, my spiritual life can start to wane. And that's why I think valleys are so important because it reorients you and makes you go, oh wow, I got I was way off. I need to be spending more time with the Lord. This is important. I want my kids to not end up like the Israelites, where they start to look like the rest of the world and they start trying to play God. I want them to have a thriving and active relationship with Jesus. And that happens, that starts with you and me, their parents or their grandparents. That's where it starts. So that's a promise that we need to possess. If we train up our kids in the way that they should go, they will not depart from it. The other thing with that that's just interesting is like there's this... uh, If you treat God that way, there's a transactional way of your relationship, isn't there? If I do good things, then God has to do good things back. Isn't that stressful? If you have that relationship with God, because then you'll always be wondering if you're doing good enough, if you've memorized enough, if you've worked hard enough. There can never be peace in a relationship like that. There can never be peace in a relationship where you believe that it's because of the work you put in, the effort you put in, the the things you say, things you memorize, what you wear, what you do. That's what makes God happy. That's not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is if you do good things, then God will be good to you. Christianity is God is so good and God has given everything for you. In return, we ought to just be good. We ought to just do what he asks us to do because he's our good father. It's just like my kids. My, my kids ought to be good because they want to make me happy, not because it's going to make me love them. I love them anyway. It's that same thing. It's, you can't have peace in a relationship where you think it's all of your, F, you're only going to be accepted if you work hard enough. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The world gives where, hey, if you work hard enough, I'll pay you. You'll earn your paycheck. You'll earn your blessing. You'll earn the good things that are going to come your way. Jesus does not give to you as the world gives. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Our Lord Jesus, he gave his peace to us before he left. This peace is not something you have to earn or even pray for. It's something that you can take possession of. That's a promise you and I have to possess, that we can have peace with our relationship with God. He's not your genie. You don't have to work for it. It's already given to you. Verse five. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to Yahweh? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left since we have sworn by Yahweh that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? So they've got this big issue. There's these men left in Benjamin, but there's no women. And so this this tribe is just going to die off. And they had made a oath that they were not going to give any of their daughters to be wives to the survivor of this tribe. And so now they're trying to figure out what, okay, what do we have to do to make this right? What do we have to do to fix it? We may have done the wrong thing, but now we got to fix it. What are we going to do? This is the best plan they can come up with. Verse 9. And they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to Yahweh, to Mizpah? And behold, No one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead were there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men. These are brave men. These are brave guys. There and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the children. Sounds like brave men. Unsuspecting people, hey, go kill everyone, including the women and the kids. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. Verse 12, and they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead four hundred young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. This is just bad. It's just terrible. Everything that's happened with Israel right now is awful. There's, they were set aside back in Exodus. God laid out, this is how you're to interact with each other. This is how you're to treat one another. This is how you're supposed to handle situations and conflicts and issues interpersonally within my nation of people. You're supposed to be a completely contrast community. How every other nation in the world looks, you're supposed to be so other than them, so contrasted that people go, what is up with those people? They look no different than anybody else in the whole world right here. They do not look like God's people. There's no difference between them and a Canaanite. They say, there's no woman. There's no women. Okay, well, let's just go murder a bunch of people and we'll find some. God does not need you and me to fix God's problems especially God does not need more of our sin to fix his problems. It reminds me of the story of Jacob and Esau, where Jacob is supposed to get the blessing from the Lord, but it looks like it's gonna go to Esau. So one day when Esau goes out hunting, Jacob goes and he puts goat skin on his arms and goes up to his blind dad and tricks him. Remember that? Did God need Jacob's sin to get the blessing? This is the stupidest, like, what do you think? Of course not. God doesn't need your sin. He's got enough of it. He doesn't need yours and my sin. But God still chooses to use Jacob. God still chooses to make a way through Jacob's bad activities, his bad plans. But you know what? People hold Jacob responsible for his sin, don't they? It ruins his relationship. He has to leave home. He doesn't get to be there when his mom dies in her last years. He completely severs ties with his dad, doesn't get to be his dad when he dies. Like, it's awful. It's awful what happens because Jacob thought, well, God needs me to fix his problem. No, he doesn't. Vengeance is mine. God's got it. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, I have plans to prosper you, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God did not create you and me to leave us just wandering and confused and hopeless and helpless. God actively has a plan for every single one of us and he doesn't need our help, our sinful help to make that plan come to fruition. What happens here at the Israelites, it, they just look like everybody else. In verse 13, then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock and Rimon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive, of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them, and the people had compassion on Benjamin because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Verse 16, Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there is the yearly feast of Yahweh at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south to Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So their grand plan is there's this big celebration. There's going to be all these people worshiping at this celebration for Yahweh. And what happens annually every year is all these girls would come out and they would dance at this particular location. So they go, well, here's how we fix it. We'll go grab people who are celebrating the Lord and you'll just kidnap them and they'll be your wives. And when the dads and brothers come out to complain, we'll tell them, hey, this is the plan. This is what it is and get over it. And they do, which is crazy. But that's how the book of Judges ends. The book of Judges ends with you just looking at that, going, "That's not cool. Like nothing about that is right. Everything in the last few chapters is terrible. There's no deliverer. There's no hope. The people are completely off base and not looking like anything that the, God's people should." And so, the book of Judges it really ends with a miracle, and the miracle is is that there continues to be in Israel. That God continues to desire these people and to make a plan for them and to redeem them and to restore them, to send them kings, to send them the king. The miracle is that God is so compassionate, that God is so gracious and merciful, that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he would take a broken, hopeless, disaster-filled people, look at all of their chaos and he would say, I can bring order to that. I can redeem that. I can restore that. I can fix that. We're supposed to be so disgusted with the Israelites here that we go, we look at chopped up people and genocide and, and killing of women and children and, and these innocent ambushes on people that, that we just are completely disgusted with them. And then we're supposed to look at it like a mirror back at ourselves. And we say, that's how my sin looks. You and I, we like to compare ourselves to people. Where we go, well, I've never done that. I mean, I've never killed anybody, I hope. Okay, cool. So never kill anyone, we we can agree on that. But like we compare ourselves. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. That's what we like to do. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so or I haven't sinned in that way. But the reality that the Bible makes very, very, very clear is you're not compared to other people. You're either covered in Jesus's righteousness or you're compared to Jesus's righteousness. You're compared to one person and that person is perfect. He lived the absolutely perfect life, a life that you and I could not ever live, did everything the way that God wanted him to, even die the way that God wanted him to. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a moment where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's so stressed out about what he has to face that he sweats blood. He's so overcome with stress and anxiety about what is going to happen. He's depressed to the point of death that he's sweating blood. And he asks God, is there any other way? And God says, no. And Jesus says, okay, not your will, but my will be done. Jesus did everything perfectly. So you are compared to that person. So you're either covered in Jesus's righteousness. Jesus has drank of your cup, or you'll be compared to Jesus's righteousness. And you'll have to drink of the cup yourself. That's how our God makes it very, very clear. We're supposed to look at this and we go, that's my sin. The cross is so huge because it really gets rid of your naivety. It says you were so bad that God had to die for you. You couldn't have been all that good. But it also gets rid of your fear. It gives you courage because it says God loved you so much that he would die for you. You see how it works both ends like that. It should give us great courage. And so I've got just a few promises that I jotted down throughout the week that I'd like to give that we really should possess, take hold of, remember throughout this upcoming week. We don't want to be people like the Israelites. We want better for our kids. We want better for ourselves. We want better for our spouses, for our coworkers, for our community. So here's some promises that God gives us. God promises that he can be our strength. Philippians 4:13 says, "I can do all things through him who gives me strength." Paul was in prison when he wrote that. His circumstances were unimaginably worse than a lot of us can think. I mean, I was bummed out when I was sitting in my bed. It was 70 degrees. I got to be two weeks with my foot lifted up, and my wife comes in, she goes, "It's 117 outside." I'm like, "I don't know, man, but I'm miserable, too." Like, OK, Paul's in prison. And he's in this tiny little dugout where all of the septic is running right through his cell. The guards aren't very nice and the food is awful. And he's sitting there going, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, we're in a place where we're in a really hard circumstances and we just need strength. We just need hope. The person we need to go to is Jesus. He's the one who can provide all that we're looking for, all that we need. The second promise is he hears your prayers. John 14, 13 through 14 says this, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the father may be glorified in the son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What Jesus says is if we ask anything that's in line with God's character, that he'll do it. It doesn't mean I don't know when, I don't know how, but Jesus says, if you pray it in my name, If you know who I am, if you know my will, if you know my desires and you're praying according to those things, oh, I'll do those things. Shouldn't that cause us to be people who just pray boldly? Shouldn't that cause us to just pray about everything? Jesus says he can do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. So how can we not be asking incessantly? How can we not be people who are just going to God constantly with our issues and our hopes and our dreams and our problems and our successes and our failures and our victories? How can we not be going to God all the time because he'll do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think? Oh, that should cause us to just go into every circumstance in life just so full of courage. I've already talked to God about this nonstop, so we're going to see what God's going to do today. God hears your prayers. That's something we should possess and hold on to because I know when things are really hard or when I'm in a bad argument or I'm frustrated, the enemy does something where he makes me not want to talk to the Lord. Where For some reason, it's just like, I just don't. Why not? He's the one who can fix it. And he hears me. God never turns his eyes away from you and me. You ever get so angry with someone you can't look at them? God never does that with his people. What you see over and over in the book of Judges is whenever the people turn and repent, God's eyes are on them. It says, and God saw, God looked at his people. God's eyes were on his people. God never gets so angry at you that he turns away from you. He hears your prayers. Even when you're at the best spot in your life and when you're at the worst spot in your life, he hears you. Another promise is God says he will fight for you. Exodus 14, 14, Yahweh himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Moses declares that to the people when the Egyptians are coming and there's the Red Sea behind them. They're faced with death and death. Like there's no way out of this. It's it's the most bleak circumstances you could ever imagine. And what they're told is, hey, be calm. God's going to fight for you. And God does. How many things do we get stressed out about, anxious over, all worried about that are really absolutely out of your control? The majority of my problems, the majority of the things that I get anxious about, that I stress out over, that I keep running my mind over and over and over again are things that are completely and absolutely out of my control, but they're completely within God's control. So what does it benefit me to be anxious and stressed and worried when really God's got it handled. And my God, he'll fight for me. I just need to stay calm. That's why Jesus says, hey, look at the flowers and look at the birds. The birds, they don't reap, they don't sow, they don't stack up in barns, and the flowers don't worry about what they're gonna dress up in tomorrow. Neither should you. Because God loves you so much more. He's got a better plan for you than those birds. He loves you so much more than the flowers which are there one day and gone tomorrow. You're eternal, those flowers are just here for right now. God's got way better plans for you. You and me can just be courageous in difficult, anxious-filled circumstances because we know God will fight my battle. I just need to stay calm. And the last one is God will always love you. First John four, nine through ten says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Just because you and I throw love around lightly doesn't mean that God does. The Old Testament uses this word chesed for God's love, and it's love that's characterized by action. It means that God proves his love. He's he's active in it. He's engaged in his love so that anyone who looks at God, anyone who looks at what God is doing, God doesn't even hardly have to say, I love you, because everyone goes, yeah, I know that. It's like a, a husband who's just... Giving and working and striving to please his wife and doing all the right things and this is a hypothetical perfect relationship where both people are great whatever it's almost like you don't have to say I love you because the wife just goes I know you love me the actions that you do the things that you say the the way that you're working all things for my good shows me how much you love me that's what God does He's got love for you and me that's characterized by action. It's not empty words. It's not empty thoughts. It's God has done something for you and me, and he's proven his love for us by giving his son on the cross. And so we can trust God. I believe we can be people who will courageously possess the promises of God if you know who your God is, that your God isn't waiting for you to go to church and to say the right things and to pray the right prayers before he'll give you blessing and good thing our God has already done all the good thing for you. He just wants you to possess it. He just wants you to take it. He just wants you to know it and to call him father and to call him friend and to go to him. And he hears you and he loves you and he's got plans for you. So Jesus, we're so thankful to call you our God. We're so thankful that you've got plans for us. We're so thankful that we can't do something so stupid that will make you turn your eyes from us. We're so thankful that even when we fail and our consequences are in front of us and we even blame you, that you still have a plan for us, that you are still actively engaged in working out your plan to make all things right. And so Jesus, we're so thankful that you bring light to darkness, that you redeem, that you restore. I pray for the marriages of this room. I pray for couples who have been going through hard seasons that you would redeem the years the locusts have eaten. I pray for parents, that you would give them patience with their children, that you would help instill in us habits and character and endurance to train up our children in the way that they should go. I pray that our kids would be better Christians, would be better believers, would, would cause revival in a way that we could never even dream of because we instilled in them righteousness and right things and following Jesus with their whole heart. So Jesus, thank you for the work that you're doing here in Grants Pass. We're thankful to be called your children. It's in your name we pray, amen.